Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is an open and shut episode with SF Cosa. Now, SF Cosa is a pseudonym for Sarah Fine. Uh, no big secret there, but uh, she uses the pseudonym uh, to distinguish her different styles of books uh, between what she writes as Sarah Fine and what she writes as SF Cosa. And SF Cosa writes psychological suspense or thrillers, if you wish. Uh, to me, thrillers are always kind of classified as being super high stakes, whereas suspense is a little bit more uh, stakes at the uh, person level rather than the, you know, town, nation, civilization, existence level. But you don't have to accept my definition. Um, either way, you can check out her new book, The Night We Burned, and decide for yourself how you would like to label it. Before we talk to uh, Sarah, I want to let you know that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that sounds like it's up your alley, you can check out their website for more. That's downandoutbooks.com. Down and Out Books, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. Now, I am recording this on a uh, bright day here in Central Oregon, a little windy, uh, but the sun is welcome. It's been uh, fairly cruddy weather here for the last week. And uh, one reason I mention that is because the book, The Night We Burned, is actually set right here in uh, this area. The protagonist uh, lives and works in Bend, which is about a 20-minute drive down Highway 97 maybe less. And uh, her backstory has to do with a cult, and uh, there have been a couple of uh, notable cults that uh, decided to make Central Oregon their base of operations. So it's kind of interesting uh, that she decided to set it here. Um, I asked her about why and what the connection is, along with quite a lot more. Uh, so let's jump right into the interview with Sarah Fine, uh, writing as SF Cosa. Well, hello, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Hi there. It's great to be here. So I called you Sarah, but uh, the book we're here to talk about is written by this character named S.F. Kosa, but it's actually no <laughs> no big literary secret that this is one of your writing identities. Um, why did you choose to go with a, uh, with a different pen name for The Night We Burned and other psychological thrillers? Well, um, the rest of my books uh, written under um, the name Sarah Fine are all, well, a dozen of them are YA, uh, and the rest of them are adult, but all of them are speculative fiction, fantasy, urban fantasy, sci-fi. Um, and so when I decided to, I guess, write in the real world, uh, <laughs> under real world rules, I uh, decided that it made sense uh, to write under a pseudonym, but that also happens to be my name, because in the meantime, Seraphine actually became Seraphine Kosa, ah. and so SF Kosa is my writing name, but it also happens to be my actual name. <laughs> Wow. Wow. So, uh, so some of the motivation then was so that your urban fantasy or your YA readers wouldn't be stumbling upon some psychological thriller and, and be surprised by it. Well, or vice versa. I kind mm -hmm. of thought that anybody who read my psychological uh, thrillers would, you know, who thought, well, I'd like to read more by this author might be kind of weirded out by some of the 
like sort of strange fantasy worlds that I've woven to this point. It's it's actually it's actually kind of funny to think that they would be weirded out by that. I mean, what weirds people out is is kind of a funny thing if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I did I thought it sort of made sense to keep them separate, but it's not a secret. Um, so the night we burned uh, has been out since August uh, of of this year, twenty twenty one, depending mm-hmm. on when you're listening to this, folks. Uh, um, and it is uh, it's set in Bend, Oregon, which I have to point out is about twenty minutes up the road from from uh, Wrong Place Right Crime Headquarters here in Redmond, Oregon. Um, now, did you have a connection with Bend, or just uh, just was a great place to set the book, or what happened there? Yeah, so I had been, I had taken a couple of trips to Oregon and uh, Portland and then spent some time in Bend as well, hiking and exploring. And um, Oregon does happen to be home to at least, I think, two cults that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed fertile ground. Uh, And so I just sort of you know, I'm, I think like most writers, I'm kind of a, a ruthless, uh, you know, sort of thief of details and settings uh, and made the decision. Bend just seems like a fabulous place and an interesting one that has changed a lot over the years. And I decided I would uh, sort of settle my cult there and then revisit it 20 years later. It is a cool city. Um, it's It's got a neat vibe to it. Um, but, uh, and one of the, the cults you might be referring to is the, uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh Puram yes, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I drive up to Spokane to visit family fairly regularly and, and basically drive right past the turnoff to, to where that was located every time there in Wasco County. Right. Um, yeah. crazy stuff. Uh, and folks can, you know. Google that if they want to learn more. But what what was the cult in this book like? Was it based on a particular cult? Did you manufacture your own from scratch or did you do some more creative borrowing in that as well? Yeah. So to create that cult, uh, I did a lot of research and I did it on two tracks. I read about um, sort of the psychology of cults uh, and I researched actual Uh, cults or high control groups, as they are often known. Uh, And so I read and uh, uh, several books. I read one on a biography of Charles Manson, a biography of Jim Jones, who was the notorious leader of the People's Temple, which is the largest um, sort of mass suicide event uh, associated with- Don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's right. And that's where that comes from. Uh, That's a really devastating event. Uh, and, um, I also actually watched the fabulous documentary, Wild Wild Country, which is about the Rajneeshpuram mm-hmm. cults, uh, you know, also researched cults like the Nexium group, uh, the, uh, Branch Davidians in Waco, etc. And, um, if you know anything about the psychology of cults, uh, you could sort of, there are several things they have in common in terms of. Um, like according to one model, Steve Hassan's uh, bite model, it's called, for behavior, information, thought, and emotion. Those are the four sort of areas that cults exert control in and cult leaders do. And so I, I looked at the um, kind of conceptual structure of cults in terms of the methods um, of control. And then I definitely um, 
in terms of the leader of this group, the Oracles of Innocence, it's called in my book. Um, I definitely, uh, you know, sort of looked at the personality characteristics of cult leaders like Jim Jones or Charles Manson and, you know, aligned my character with some of those uh, characteristics, the sort of narcissistic control and need for adoration, the ability, sort of charismatic ability to manipulate um, and to target people's emotional needs and meet them in the short term while sort of reeling them in and increasing the level of dependence uh, to sort of seal the deal and uh, cement that relationship. So um, I did research on a lot of fronts and created something that I, I wouldn't say is departs from what you would expect to see in a cult, but it is, you know, in terms of the belief system and things, I kind of invented my own. Well, now anyone who just listened to that would probably be thinking to themselves, wow, this is one sharp lady. She knows her stuff. And (laughs) they would be right because you didn't just stumble into psychological thrillers as an author. I mean, you do have a day job that you can bring to bear on a story like this. And, and I think that shows up in the description that you just gave. Um, What do you do uh, from nine to five each day? I am a clinical psychologist, but it, but sort of funnily enough, I I actually am a child psychologist. So I don't specialize. I, well, I say I don't work with adults, but the truth is I am a child psychologist who works with kids 10 and under, which means that I am constantly working with adults Uh because I I work with their parents. Uh But um, as I look for, um, so I I think I'm psychologically minded. I'm very interested in, um, you know, the sort of angles of things, psychopathology, uh, and uh, particularly the psychology of trauma and how it affects individuals throughout the lifespan. So that's probably a a through line in a lot of my books, including my fantasy books. Uh, But um, you wouldn't, for example, see any echo of any of my clients in these books because my clients are all small children. No cult leaders among them yet, huh? (laughs) No, (laughs) most definitely not. Um, You know, I was a police officer for for 20 years and one of the subgenres I write in is police procedural. And, you know, so if you've done the job, you bring mm-hmm. something particular to a procedural that maybe someone who hasn't done that job, you know, either doesn't bring or has to do a lot of research to be able to bring or or whatever. And I think being a clinical psychologist and writing a psychological thriller is much the same kind yeah. of transference <laughs> there. Yeah. Well, I definitely have some beliefs about how sort of psychological uh, things uh, should be portrayed in terms of, for example, mental illness or any time I portray, like in my previous book, The Quiet Girl, when I portrayed an actual mental health professional. Um, I I do have strong opinions about how those things uh, should be portrayed in my books, at least. Uh, so I think it, that definitely informs uh, those perspectives. Yeah, I think that's something when you have an expertise that that you then write in that field, uh, or read in that field, you, you know, you notice things like, I mean, I notice things in procedurals that I'm like, oh my God, come on. You know, I mean, and, and to the degree that there's even a few pet peeves of, of like common errors that I see that I just wish I could. Oh, know, I bet. Get Is that same thing true for you in, 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 in terms um, of how mental health professionals are, are portrayed or, or how their profession is portrayed? Well, yes, I, I have, there are certain things that, um, I find somewhat painful to 
read about. Um, it's certainly, and I don't begrudge authors, you know, their decisions in fiction, but I certainly, uh, I, you know, I struggle a little bit when, uh, when mental health professionals are evil mm -hmm. and do unethical things. That's, mm -hmm. that's sort of hard. You know, it's a trope that um, I struggle with a little bit because I don't, I, it's painful for me to think that anybody would be discouraged from getting help if they needed it. And I worry that if that's too pervasive of a trope, then it, mm -hmm. it can detract from people's willingness to trust a mental health mm -hmm. professional who could actually help them. And then the romanticization of uh, mental illness um, as a dramatic device. The, the brilliant mind sort of trope where the, the person has a mental illness, but it's actually a blessing, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there there's a line there, right? I mean, because individuals uh, who have mental illness, I mean, can are tremendously resilient, have tremendous resources and other strengths that doesn't define them, you know. But uh, at the same time, I think that there's a definitely making it sort of twisting it a little bit and and either overemphasizing certain aspects of it or using it to define a person or um, like I said ro sort of romanticizing that aspect because the truth is you know mental illness causes a lot of suffering um, it doesn't mean that you can't have a good life it's just you know it's like diabetes or any other you know condition you just need to take care of yourself and I like portrayals that are realistic along those lines you mentioned earlier um, about the kind of the, the through thread in a lot of your writing is about how trauma, you know, can affect someone long term and through the years and, and just have not just that immediate traumatic effect, but that kind of residual effect. Uh, and that's really the case here, it seems, with uh, the main character in The Night We Burned, uh, Dora, uh, who yes. has some trauma in her past, and that is kind of, I don't want to say reawakened, but certainly, you know, it's it's being triggered, I guess, um, by what's happening in the here and now in this book. And so maybe you could set that up for, for folks a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, so the setup of the book is that Dora is a fact checker for an online, you know, news magazine. Uh, she's very meticulous and very adherent to the truth, uh, no matter, you know, how small the detail. That's her job. But it, there's a reason um, there's a reason she clings to those facts and that reality. Um, and when a journalist colleague of hers decides to cover a murder that's linked to a, all that he thinks is, is linked to a cult massacre, a fire that took place in Dora's hometown 20 years earlier. Um, she realizes that to cover up this traumatic past of hers, she's going to have to change some of the facts to conceal her connection to this cult massacre that took place. And um, as you meet Dora, you see that she has some uh, peculiar habits. She's somewhat socially isolated. Uh, she uh, clearly doesn't eat very much. She runs obsessively um, and she avoids uh, generally any cues and uh, speaking about her past. So one of the hallmarks of PTSD is avoidance. Uh, avoidance of anything that might trigger that anxiety or those memories. And Dora is definitely exhibiting that, but you can also see how not dealing with the trauma over the years, kind of avoiding it, running from it, she refers a lot to sort of running away, um, how it's in some ways, you know, sort of trauma, you know, in our histories, right, there's stories on our bodies. 
And that is definitely true for Dora. And so as she progresses through the story and confronts some of these things from her past and initially is frantically trying to hide them, you see the toll that um, this kind of avoidance and secret keeping has taken on her body uh, through the years as well. And is it a trope to say that, you know, essentially you can never really get past or at least put this trauma somewhat to bed until you faced it? And if she's been running from it for this long, she clearly hasn't faced it. Am I being overly simplistic here? Well, it's, I mean, it's a complicated process to recover from trauma if you are a person who is experiencing PTSD. So, I mean, there's huge variability in terms of how people respond to traumatic experiences. Not everybody who's experienced a trauma develops PTSD. But for those who do, really the only way to begin the recovery process is to start to understand, think about, and approach those traumatic memories um, kind of desensitize yourself to them, probably create meaning from them, a narrative that makes sense, and to be able to then see a future moving past it. That's what the uh, well-established um, and effective treatments for trauma do, is it allows people to process those memories. What you can't do is just shove them down deep and expect them to stay down there. Yeah, my wife is f fond of saying that, you know, the feelings will find a way to come out. They just, you know, they might be disguised. You might, they might come out right. you know, in, a, in a pair of double cheeseburgers or they might come down, you know, in risky behavior or getting angry at something completely different that makes no sense. I mean, the, the million different reactions. Absolutely. That's right. Which is why it can be hard to process or hard to recognize sometimes. But, you know, you it's like, Avoiding a trauma is like trying to hold a beach ball under the surface of a swimming pool. Oh, that's it's a good quite analogy. tricky. And eventually it's probably going to find a way to bob to the surface. And it takes a lot of effort, even if you're successful in doing it for a while. I mean, Correct. it takes a lot of effort. And, and, and I mean, to continue the, the analogy that doesn't just sit there statically, it's constantly shifting and trying to come yeah, up at exactly. the different angles. So that's a very of, good analogy. I love it. Yeah. It's a favorite of psychologists, I think. <laughs> Uh, so Dora, she she's kind of dealing with two separate issues here. I mean, she's dealing with her past and she's dealing with the present. Um, and so there's a lot of, of, of tension there. As you tell the story, is it uh, told entirely in the present or do you do you take trips back into her past because she clearly has one worth uh, exploring? Right. So I definitely, I, I do like to go back and forth. And in this novel, um, the story, the narrative is split between Dora in the present day and then this young woman who is uh, being lured into this group a year before the uh, catastrophic fire that kills most of the adult members of the group takes place. And so the story alternates between Dora in the present trying to cover up her connection and then the past as um, this group kind of marches toward uh, their doom. And so you see uh, characters who appear in the present day. You see how they're interacting uh, in the past. And, you know, you sort of start to wonder who's who uh, in terms of like what's going on in the present, et cetera. Like who's responsible? Because in the present, what's happening is that the adult survivors of uh, this fire are being murdered. Oh, wow. So you wonder, like, who is doing that and why? You know, I think those multiple timeline stories are fascinating to me, uh, dual timeline or even more than than that. 
the, the way that, that that storytelling can take place. Um, and it, it, you know, it sounds like you get a chance to examine, you know, how it is someone could be drawn into a cult like this, because when we see the end results in the news, you know, I think most people's initial thoughts are what a bunch of crazies. And I know that's a bad word in your world. So I apologize. But you know, why, how could they believe that? How could they be drawn into that? Oh my gosh, you know, these people must have some kind of a problem or their or whatever, you know, and the reality is, is the process, if it's successful, and I define success, you know, I'm not saying it's a good right. thing. But if it's successful, it's done so in a way that can be very enthralling to folks that are you know, yeah, they have some weak spots that are being targeted, but they're not, they're, they could be you, they could be your neighbor, they could be your sister, your brother, your, you know. Uh, and so you you exploring that, I think, would it would be a very enlightening thing for people to see. This is the process of how that can happen. Yeah, I, that was really important to me because I, you, you know, you pretty much nailed it. You described it perfectly. It's very easy to dismiss individuals who have been in these groups as weak, gullible, you know, and it's very hard to understand how they could have been drawn in and why would they stay when things start to get mm. bad? I mean, that's what everybody wondered about, like the Jonestown massacres. Like it was kind of bad there and things were getting very weird. And he was making people like actually pretend to drink poison. He was preparing people to do this. Why didn't people leave? Why did almost nobody leave? And so I definitely wanted to show how that could happen. Because the truth is, like, once you're in a group, I mean, people join these groups. They're not like, hey, I think what would be a really great <laughs> life decision would be to join a cult. Like nobody, literally nobody <laughs> says that. <laughs> right? Instead, no. they sort of, you know, you get you hook up with people who are nice. So you definitely see that at the beginning, like people, you know, when, um, this young woman, uh, Christy, she gets drawn in. And the first thing she does is she's befriended by another young woman named Esther who offers her some food. She's on the streets in Portland and, uh, she's offered a meal. She's, they take her to a house where everybody's friendly to her, includes her, um, you know, and they sort of go from there. And so by the time things are weird, she's got real relationships with people she cares about. So it's not just, you know, how do I, I'm just going to bug out and leave. It's like, well, is it better to go anywhere else? You know, and maybe things will get better. So it's sort of the frog and the frying pan kind of analogy where you've got somebody who's there and thinking, you know, slowly things are getting worse, but it, it could get better in a little bit. Like maybe we could reverse this and I'm still with these people I care about. But meanwhile, the sort of mechanisms of the cult are active in terms of reducing trust, increasing paranoia, uh, feeding people disinformation so they don't know what to believe. They learn not mm -hmm. to trust their own minds. Creating dependency. Absolutely. So, so you can see sort of the traps that people fall into and the the difficulty that they have in terms of making good decisions under those circumstances. And as you said, that could be anybody. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that human beings make is this sort of confirmation or is this um, fundamental attribution bias mm. where we look at people and when something goes wrong, we attribute it to something about the person. They're gullible, they're weak, they, you know, they're not very bright, etc. But the truth is the influence of the situation, the social context, the people around them is actually incredibly powerful. It's easy to dismiss and just blame a person. But the fact is the situation is powerful. 
and the power of the group uh, and the sense of belonging is is a powerful human uh, element. It's uh, you know I mean if anyone that's at all versed in behavioral science will will tell you that yes being part of the group group uh, participation group uh, membership and and uh, how people will adhere to the group norms uh, and and how, uh, how status is 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 inferred or conferred well both I guess. Uh, it's exactly. fascinating stuff. It's fascinating stuff. We could do an hour on that, but uh, uh, I, I, I don't know that pe- anyone besides you or I would be interested. Um, <laughs> but this is a fascinating topic, and and the idea that this this uh, young girl is part of this cult has this traumatic event is still dealing with it years later and is forced mm-hmm. to reckon with it because of what's going on in her present life. Um, I think it's a brilliant premise. Uh, I have not been able to read this book yet, but it has just moved multiple places up my TBR list. So uh, I look forward to exploring it. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the book is <laughs> The Night We Burned. It is by Sarah Fine, although she's writing this one as SF Cosa. It's not her first uh, psychological thriller, but it is the most recent one. Check it out, folks. And uh, Sarah, I want to tell you, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, Sarah Fine or SF Cosa, take your pick. The Night We Burned sounds like a fascinating read. Uh, and if it appeals to you, please pick it up. Give her a try. A uh, really delightful person. I enjoyed my conversation with her. Uh, next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime, we're going to uh, talk to Dana Stabenow, uh, who is a very well-known writer with uh, books set in Alaska. And so we're going to delve into why Alaska and what about Alaska and a lot more. Uh, that was also a really fun interview. I like Dana a lot um, and uh, really enjoyed talking to her about her work. Uh, so that's next episode, uh, the feature episode for the month of November uh, on Wrong Place or Right Crime. Quick Zafiro update for you. If you're listening to this when it drops on November 10th, we are in the midst of a sale on my Anya series. So for a couple more days, you can pick up Blood on Blood for free and the remaining books in the series for 99 cents or the box set for $2.99. Pretty smoking deal. Uh, if you're listening to this at some other time and it's not on sale, it's pretty reasonably priced. So feel free to pick it up at the regular price if you want, uh, and it'll go on sale again eventually anyway. So I wrote those books with Jim Wilski, who is a fantastic short story author. You should check him out. Uh, that's the Anya series, starting with the Blood on Blood. Uh, it's also available on audio if you want to hear uh, Darren Meekin's narration, which uh, he really captured the characters well. Uh, that sale will last until the end of the day on November 12th. The other piece of news I want to share with you is uh, one I dropped uh, last week as well. And uh, that is that on November 18th, the 7th River City novel, Dirty Little Town, will be out. Uh, it is, of course, available for pre-order now. All right. I want to thank Sarah for our great conversation and for coming on the show. Down Out Books, as always, for being the sponsor. And of course, you, the listener, thanks for being here. If The Night We Burned or any of Sarah's work sounds interesting to you, please give her a read. Remember to support the authors that you like in whatever way you can, whether that's buying their books, doing book reviews, which folks, those help a lot, even just a one-liner, or, uh, you know, ordering their books in at the library. Whatever it is that works for you, um, authors really appreciate that support. I know I do. All right, Dana Stabenow next week on Wrong Place or Right Crime. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. (laughs) 